0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning. Uh, great to be here with all of you today. Uh, we have uh, a wonderful text uh, before us. Tom, I'm glad you made it here today. Good to see you. Uh, would you join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter? You thought we'd be in this Gospel forever. It's quickly closing in on us. John chapter 18, last week we finished chapter 17, the Lord's Prayer. They were the words of the intercessory work of Christ. He prayed uh, in John seventeen twelve. while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, speaking of the disciples, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. It is through his intercession that he brings all his own all the way to glory. For he said in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here in John 18 is the immediate illustration of that protection. Chapter 17 are the words of his protection in the prayer. Chapter 18 gives us a dramatic demonstration of it in the first 11 verses of chapter 18. We're going to witness the betrayal of Jesus over the next couple weeks in chapters 18 and 19 his arrest followed by a series of mock trials the crucifixion happens in the middle there in chapter 19 and it's going to be tempting over the next couple weeks to look at all that takes place and conclude that Jesus lost that he was overpowered, that he was an unwilling victim. But that's not the truth of the story. He is not a victim. He was not overpowered. What John wants you to see from his betrayal to his arrest and in all of his mock trials through the entire thing, Christ is in total control. And you need to understand that. Jesus declared in John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, that great chapter, you'll remember, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. On the contrary, Christ's death was always plan A. This was never plan B. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. As God incarnate, Jesus is supremely and completely in total control, doing precisely what the Father has sent him to do, namely to give his life as a ransom to pay for our sin So that you can boldly approach the throne of grace and be welcomed at the table of the king. So we begin today with the betrayal of the sovereign one. Beginning in John chapter 18, we'll start by reading these first 11 verses. This is the word of the true and living God. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So he said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In these opening 11 verses, John presents four preeminent features, four features that demonstrate Christ's majesty and his glory that I'd like you to see. First in verses one through four, we see Christ's divine resolve. Divine resolve. Now John opens verse 1 by giving us first the setting where all this is happening. It says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Um, The Lord's time for teaching the 11 was now over. Um, And after leaving the upper room that we read about at the end of chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples made their way through the um, old city of Jerusalem out through one of the the gates of the city. And here John tells us they crossed over the ravine of the Kidron Valley. Now, scholars point something out that's pretty interesting here. This ravine runs just a few hundred feet um, off of the Temple Mount. And across from this steep valley is the western slope. The Mount of Olives is right there at the base. And beside it, or, or, or in its entry, there was a garden. Um, the Kidron Brook is um, a seasonal brook that, that runs only during the raining season. And it's in between the, the east side of the Old City and there for the Mount of Olives. So it had to be crossed. It had to be crossed over by Jesus and his disciples to reach probably the walled olive grove uh, grove called Gethsemane. Um, Now, up on the temple ground, remember, it is Passover. The priests are in preparation of the celebration. They've been sacrificing lambs for days there at the altar. It is a bloodbath. Blood would have been running all down the altar, down through the channels which the temple had to, to send the blood outside and exit the temple down that steep slope into the same brook. Now we don't know for sure how many lambs were sacrificed at this Passover, but we do know that there was a census taken somewhat um, sometime afterwards where there were 256,000 lambs sacrificed. 256,000 lambs. So you can imagine the amount of blood that a quarter million lambs must have produced as it ran down through those channels into this small brook. And as Jesus and his disciples are now pictured and crossing over it, you can just picture it, can't you? Jesus stepping over, very likely a blood-colored ravine, knowing that all the blood of these sacrificial lambs are merely foreshadows as God will provide for himself the one true lamb of God. And it is he, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will in fact be that one perfect and final sacrifice as he will lay down his life upon the cross to sacrifice and spill his own precious blood as a payment for our sin it's a staggering scene and it is why that we can sing today and every day what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of jesus so in verse 1 as jesus went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the kidron John writes, there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Um, The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call it Gethsemane. Um, John calls it a garden. You put those two terms together, that's how we come to know of the place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Nowhere in the Bible is it called that together. John calls it a garden. They call it Gethsemane. It was probably uh, an olive orchard and uh, right there at the base of Mount of Olives. (laughs) Uh, It's a familiar place to the Lord. Luke 22 tells us it was his custom to often go in and out of there. But the question is why? Why is Jesus going to this garden now? One reason, because he knows that's where Judas will be expecting him to be. Judas, you'll remember, left the upper room at the end of chapter 13 of John. He has already cut the deal with the chief priest to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But all along this week, he's been looking for the opportune time to do this. Remember, the city was filled with pilgrims, many of whom have fervently hailed Jesus as the Messiah just a couple days ago. Matthew 26 tells us they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur amongst the people. So Judas and the mob knew they couldn't do this during the day at the temple where Jesus was preaching in public every single day. And so they are sneaking around in the night looking for the opportune time to get the Christ. The last thing that the religious leaders wanted with Rome breathing down their neck during this time of the Passover festival is some big revolt to happen at the temple. So Judas says, I know where he'll be. We'll get him at night in the garden where he goes there to pray. Jesus, knowing that's where Judas will look for him, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus is the one who is in control, and he's doing exactly what he has been sent to do. The other Gospels tell us that at this point, Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he and along his disciples are there to pray. He takes his inner circle of Peter, James, and John, And he asked them to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke 22 tells us Jesus went about a stone throws away and he knelt down and began to pray. Matthew 26 specifically tells us that he'll spend about an hour there to pray. Luke again says when he arose from prayer, he found his disciples sleeping from all of their sorrow. And while Jesus was praying, he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. In Mark 13, Jesus says to the disciples, Get up and let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. In John's gospel, he simply says here in chapter 18, verse 1, He, Jesus, went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. It's interesting. You'll recall when John opened this gospel. He started. With the phrase. In the beginning. Was the word. In the beginning. Was the word. John 1. 1. And we noted then. How much it reminded us. Of, of Genesis 1. In the beginning. God created. In the beginning. God created. And. As I studied this section of scripture, there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is once again drawing for us a parallel to look at. He draws something to contrast for us, and he's the only gospel writer who intentionally calls this place, again, a garden, a garden. And I can't help but think back to the original garden, where there the story of redemption started, In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were there in the garden of Eden. In John 18, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, after God had created everything, he said, Behold, it was good. In Gethsemane, Jesus will say, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. In Eden, Adam and Eve fell. In Gethsemane, Christ will conquer. In Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They run and hide. In Gethsemane, Jesus will boldly present himself and hide from no one. In Eden, Adam and Eve spent their time talking to Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus spent his time talking to God. In Eden, Adam and Eve will take the fruit from the serpent. In Gethsemane, Jesus will receive the cup from the Father. No doubt, my mind, John wants. You to understand the contrast of the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, man fell. In Gethsemane, Christ conquers. And we should all give praise and glory to the King of Kings because of what he, in fact, did. Verse 2 tells us now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. We could say it this way. Christ went to Gethsemane because he knew Judas would go there looking for him. Verse 3 tells us, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there. A Roman cohort of full strength was anywhere between 600 and 1,000 men. Soldiers, Matthew 26, 47, describes it as a large crowd. Make No doubt about it, though, these are armed Roman soldiers. Judas also had with them officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were members of the the temple's police force, and they came bearing lanterns, torches, and weapons. So imagine the scene. You've got a couple hundred Roman soldiers with swords. Then you've got uh, all these temple guards, maybe 100, 200 of them with clubs. This is a scene intended to make sure there is no question who has the power. You're going to have Jesus over here with his 11 disciples and you're going to have Judas over there with hundreds of officers and soldiers with swords, clubs, and torches. Verse (laughs) 4, so Jesus knowing all the things that were coming upon him went forth. This is his divine resolve. John wants us to know that Jesus went to that garden because he knew all the things that were coming upon him and he stepped right into it. He knew Judas would be there, that that's where he would be. He is not a victim. He moved to his betrayal, resolutely. He moved to his arrest, resolutely. He moved to his own execution. He is not trapped. He is not deceived. He is not tricked. He is not surprised. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, the leaders of Israel have been trying to arrest him. But over and over again, we have read it is not his hour. It's not yet his hour. It's not yet his hour. Now it is his hour, so Jesus makes it easy for them. Luke 22 tells us, When the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against them, when they had showed up, Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour... And the power of darkness are yours. You are now the agents of hell doing the will of my Father. Satan and hell, God and heaven meet the very same place with entirely opposite intentions, and God triumphs. On previous occasions, Christ had avoided his enemies passed right out of their midst, got away from them. It was not his hour. It was not his hour. It was not his hour. Now it was his hour, and the good shepherd is going to lay his life down for the sheep. He is no victim. He went forth, verse 1. He went forth, verse 4. It's kind of interesting. If Jesus will allow them to arrest him, there is no weapon necessary. Yet, if he will not allow them to arrest him, no weapon would ever be adequate. Now, John doesn't record it, but Judas has already prearranged a signal to, in fact, point out who Jesus was. He says in Mark 14, 44, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard says in Matthew 26, 49, that immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, there's several customary um, ways of of greeting uh, during this time in in first century Judea. Um, A kiss on the cheek was something that was um, reserved for, obviously, a very close acquaintance or, or friend which really just adds further insult here, does it not? And it shows just how hard Judas's heart has become. Jesus looked deep into his heart of stone and said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Well, that was heading number one, the divine resolve of Christ. We now turn to four, uh, verses four through six. And section number two, I titled it the divine power of Christ. The divine power of Christ. Verse four. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to him, Whom do you seek? Verse five. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said to him, I am he. Um, in your Bible, the word he there should have either a little note beside it or uh, my NAS, NAS um, has it in italics. Um, and what that tells you is that this word has been added by the commentators um, for clarity. In the original text, it simply says, Ego ame," I am. Jesus went forth. He's not hiding He's not cowering and said to them, whom do you seek? And the soldiers answered him, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. This should send your mind all the way back to the Old Testament of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses. And he says, tell the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. The great I am who I am. He who always was and is and will be. He is Yahweh, the Lord thy God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the great I am. And you recall, it is only in John that he has carefully recorded each of the seven I am statements that we have seen in our study. He said, I am the bread of life I am the light of the world I am the door of the sheepfold I am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life I am the way the truth and the life and he said I am the true vine and now here in this hour of darkness Christ steps forward he steps forth he takes the initiative with all authority and with all power, and he simply speaks his name, I am. Now, again, remember the scene. (laughs) You've got hundreds of of Roman soldiers covered in, in, in armor, armed with their swords, and then there's maybe another couple hundred temple officers with their clubs and torches. He is surrounded, he is outnumbered, but don't be mistaken, he is the great I am. And here in verse 6, John once again demonstrates that he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And by the power of his word, Yahweh speaks. And these soldiers experience just a glimpse of his power and his majesty and his authority. As it says in verse 6, so when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. He simply speaks and hundreds of Roman and Jewish officers in an instant fall like dominoes by the name of the Lord. John is showing us, but Christ is showing his disciples. I am not a victim. Your Lord is not trapped. I wasn't taken against my will. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. The Lord simply speaks his name. The entire mob falls to the ground. Beloved, this is not only an incredible display of power, Could we not also say that this is an incredibly um, kind act of mercy and grace? This is one last chance for those who have come in opposition against Jesus to experience firsthand he is God. Uh, Imagine Judas. (laughs) Judas. He's been in the front row for this whole thing, all three plus years. He's heard the sermons, he's witnessed the healings, and yet in his hardened heart he just refused to believe. And here Jesus says one final time to these men look who I am. And these men are going to have to pick themselves off up off the ground to kick off the dirt off of their clothes because they have been swept over by the power of Christ. How blind, how deaf must Judas be not to crawl and simply beg at the Lord's feet for mercy. The knee that refuses to bow to Christ and confess him as Lord over their life will one day be forced to do so. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven... On the earth and under the earth. The realm of the dead. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make no mistake about it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You you can bow your knee now in faithful trust and adoration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or you can bow your knee at the judgment where you will acknowledge who he is. But in that moment, it will be too late. Let today be the day. I beg God to take out that heart of stone. To give you that heart of flesh. Cry out for his blood to, to wash over you clean. Cry for a heart that beats in rhythm with his that aches for the things that that aches his heart, for a heart that loves him and and worships him, that denies self and and all the things of this world, the word of faith would would fill you. Confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead let this be the day that you bow your knee and worship to Christ and you put all of your faith and trust in him. Well, this brings us to number three in verses seven through nine in the divine love of Christ. And this is really an amazing part of the story. And we see it beginning here in verse seven. Therefore he, Jesus, again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Don't let this pass you by. After the mob gets up off of the ground and dusts themselves off, (coughs) you'll notice in the text it says, Jesus again asks them, who do you seek? And by making his captors twice state their orders that they were there only to arrest him. The Lord forced them to acknowledge that they did not have these orders from the officers to arrest the other disciples. So Jesus says in verse 8, so if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, why did Jesus do this? John tells us in verse 9. He did this to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. You'll recall the the Lord just prayed this in the high priestly prayer. We, We opened with it. He prayed, Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them have been lost. Do you realize that not only does our Savior save sinners, he also secures them forever. He is the good shepherd who protects his sheep. He is not like the hired hand from John 10, who fled when he saw the wolf coming. No, beloved, here we see the divine love Christ has for his own as he protects them. He's guarded these men. He knows they are yet to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That being arrested here would have been probably just too much for them in their flesh to handle all on their own. So Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith boldly steps in front of them and says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me let these men go their way. It kind of uh, reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is what? Faithful. He will not let you be tempted or, or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. What is truly amazing is God never stops being faithful. God never stops. Even when these men stumble, and boy, are they going to stumble. They will. By the end of the day, each one will flee to his own home, scripture says. Now, everything will change after the resurrection, after the coming of the spirit of God. But later today at the crucifixion, these are the ones who will run in fear, Peter in denial, but in just 40 days from now, They will begin to turn the entire world upside down because of the boldness of their faith. What a gift from God. But here, just hours before the cross, Jesus steps forward one more time as their good shepherd. And he places himself between the crowd and his own men. And he says, I stand in their place. Let them go. Take me. And even in the most even when Christ is about to experience just the most horrific and torturous execution that you could possibly even fathom, he's still in this moment being the good shepherd. <laughs> Protecting his own, he steps forth and says, You let these go their way. Here I am. Well, this takes us to number four in our final heading. As verses 10 through 11, we see the divine obedience of Christ. The divine obedience of Christ. Now remember the scene? Here are the disciples. They're surrounded by hundreds of soldiers, all of whom have come bearing arms. Their own soldiers have their swords. The the temple guardsmen have have clubs and, and torches. But the disciples have just witnessed once again the authority and the power that Christ has that nobody else possesses. They've testified before, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They've witnessed before at the sound of his voice, dead man coming to life and walking out of their tombs in grave clothes. And now they have just witnessed hundreds of soldiers fall to the ground as Jesus spoke his name. Well, these once anxious and scared and, and worried disciples, well, they're suddenly emboldened. Or at least Peter is, as he starts to think, ha, we've got Jesus with us, guys. So it says in verse 10, Simon Peter, <coughs> Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now, if you're wondering why did Peter cut off his ear, the only reason I can come up with is he missed. Right? You don't aim for an ear in a sword fight. Maybe Malchus ducked or something. I don't know. I'm sure he was going for the neck. Maybe the Lord just kind of supernaturally pushed that sword off to the side. But what is Peter doing anyways? verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put the sword away. Jesus doesn't need a sword to win the battle. <laughs> now, I do want to point something out. Just before this mob showed up, do you remember what Jesus asked Peter to do in the garden? What did he ask Peter to do? Peter, James, Peter, James, and John. To pray, right? To pray. And isn't it interesting that these disciples who slept through the prayer meeting, if Peter would have just done as the Lord had asked him, he would have had more power at his disposal than any physical weapon could bring. Jesus didn't ask Peter to swing the sword, he asked Peter to pray. Beloved, there are times when swinging the sword is justified. You have every right to defend and to protect yourself. And as Christians at this time, in history, in this nation, you may be tempted to want to go out there and start swinging the sword. Jesus reminds us here, he asks us to pray. Praying is harder. Praying takes more sacrifice. Praying takes more diligent. Getting angry, yelling, fighting. Those come fairly easy in the flesh. But to carve out a half an hour, an hour every morning or during your lunch break or, or at night when you're able to come home and have some time with you and the Lord is to acknowledge that the only true power you have will be what the spirit grants you and you will never be more powerful than you are when you are on your knees in prayer. That's difficult for us. Most of us, we read, we study, we attend, we show up, we serve, we give, But very few will pray. The night of Jesus' arrest, the one thing he asked his disciples to do was to pray. Surely that's somewhat instructive for what the Lord seeks for his people today. Verse 11, Jesus has to stop Peter. Once again, Peter is trying to stop his death. He's already had to say, Get behind me, Satan. Peter keeps trying to stop the Lord Jesus Christ from dying. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Wow. The Bible speaks of two different cups. In the Old Testament, we read primarily about what we would call God's cup of wrath or judgment. I'll give you just a couple quick examples. Psalm 75 verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Isaiah 51 verse 17, Rouse, arouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. This is the cup of his judgment, the cup of his wrath. But the Bible does also speak about another cup. What we might call the cup of salvation. For example, in Psalm 116 verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? A toast to salvation. Listen, in the unfathomable mercy of God the Father, he gives the cup of his wrath, not ultimately to those whom all deserve it, but on the cross he pours it out full strength upon his Son. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will drink the cup of the Father's wrath that you and I deserve so we could drink the cup of salvation. It's just amazing. Now let me be very clear with you. We will all drink from one of those two cups. (laughs) If you reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you believe in a different gospel, if you believe in a different Jesus Christ than the one that we have read about today in scripture, you will drink the cup of his judgment. But praise be to God. Our God is not only just, he is also rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. And he did that not by being a victim. Not because he was tricked or captured against his will in Gethsemane. He did that because he willfully, and scripture says, joyfully. Laid down his life upon the cross and bore our sins in his flesh. As he drank the cup of the Father's judgment, so you and I could receive as a gift of grace through faith the cup of his salvation. This is the all glorious Son of God who humbled himself in an act of divine obedience and gave himself up in our place. Can I ask you, have you received the cup of salvation? This gracious gift, the salvation founded, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has his Holy Spirit done a regenerating work in you and opened blind eyes and freed up deaf ears? Does your heart now beat for God's kingdom and not your own? If it has, you need never to fear For as the Lord said in verse 9, of those whom you have given me, Father, I lost not one. What a God and what a Savior. Well, at this time, I'd like to remind you that we will have men and women who will come down here who would be happy to pray with you if um, you need prayers, either now or certainly after service. And I'll invite you to please stand. We sing one more song of praise to our Lord. I will rise when you call my name.